Let me ask you a question as we start this morning. Um, why is Christ returning? Did he forget something? Is it because he said he is? Like, I don't think we ever ask the question. I think a lot of people understand that Christ is returning, but I don't think a lot of people ask the question as to why he was returning. Like, what is he coming back for? You see, most of us have been taught that Christ returning is all about Christ taking us away. So he comes back to occupy the earth, to remove all of us, which sounds a bit weird, and then he rules and reigns for a thousand years on earth and then blows the whole entire earth up and blows up heaven and builds a new one. That's really what most of us have been taught through our lives, is that Christ comes back, he takes us away, he reigns for a thousand years, finally destroys the devil, all that sort of stuff, then there's a new heaven and a new earth, so he destroys the earth, he destroys the heaven, and there's a new earth, new heaven, and whoop, whoop, away we go. That's what we have been taught, but is that actually what happens? Because if you want to understand the return of Christ, you've got to understand that the return of Christ is more than just an event. He's not just coming and going, I'm here, and then that's it. It's like an event. It can't be an event because... If, if it is an event, it'll be like us voting a government in so that they can then go and live in the, in the beehive. And that's it. So we vote a government in. woo We won. Now we get to sit in the beehive. Yay! No, no, why, why do we vote a government in? Not to occupy the beehive, but so that they can govern a nation. It doesn't make sense that Jesus would come back to remove us all just to occupy and not govern. Are you with me today? He's not just here to occupy a building. He's here to govern a nation. And Jesus isn't coming back to say, hey, I said I'd come back, so I came back. It's not like, mum, I promise I'll come visit you at Easter, so I go visit you at Easter. There's, there's a purpose and there's a reason for Jesus coming back. And most stuff that we get taught, um, especially by people that have a futuristic view about end times, is that Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom. That's what he's coming back, to establish a kingdom. Well, there's a, there's a prophetic picture of this in Daniel chapter 2. And we're going to have a quick look at that. And then we're going to talk about what the kingdom of God is for a little bit. And then we're just going to cover two things that, that actually will happen when Christ returns. Is that all right? Daniel 2, 31 to 35. Now you're going to understand Nebuchadnezzar's had this dream. He, but he's had a dream and he's gone to all of his, um, you know, mystics and spiritualists and all that sort of stuff. He said to him, I've had a dream. I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You have to tell me what the dream is and you have to give me the interpretation. None of his guys could do that until it came to Daniel. Daniel was able to tell him what dream he had and what it meant. And so we, we start this in verse 31. It says, your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. It's how Trinity talks about me in the mornings. Sheesh. Sympathy laugh. 
The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. Remember that. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor. So that's like all the, all the you know, when you, when you uh, peanuts have got like that skin on the outside of them, that's chaff, it blows away in the wind. And the wind swept them away, that's all these all these things swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel goes on in verse 39 of the same chapter and explains the, the vision to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so it will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the people will be mixed and will not remain united any more than the iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Come on, that's a great, that's a great piece of scripture right there, yes? Come on. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Now, so you understand what this means, all theologians, all historians relate this statue um, to the different empires that ruled the earth at one stage or another. So it's going to come up on the screen for you behind you. The gold represents... There we go. The gold represents Babylonia. That was King Nebuchadnezzar's empire. It ruled the earth at the time. After Babylonia became the Medo-Persian empire that, that conquered Babylonia and, and started to rule the earth. After that was the Greek empire, which represents the bronze. And then after the Greek empire became the Romans, which represents the iron. Now, the, the partly clay and the partly iron also represents Ro uh, the Roman rule because what happened for the Roman rule to dissipate and for it to fall apart was there was 10 individual provinces, hence 10 toes, 10 individual provinces that were part of the Roman Empire that rebelled against the Roman Empire. And because of there being disunity, eventually the Roman Empire crumbled. Now, 
We say all that because Daniel prophesied this 536 years before Christ appeared. That all these kingdoms would rise and all these kingdoms would fall, but there would be a rock not cut by human hands that would come and not just destroy them all, but obliterate them all. That they would no longer exist. That they'll be blown away in the wind like the chaff. The rock that this scripture refers to is the coming of Christ the first time where Jesus appeared the first time. The rock always presents Christ, not cut by human hands because he was fully God yet fully man because Mary was, was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, this rock is not formed by human hands, but from God himself. Are you with me? And it destroys all others because it's the divine rock that establishes a divine kingdom. And that kingdom that Jesus started would become a mighty mountain that would fill the whole earth. So the second coming of Jesus is not about him establishing a kingdom. The first coming of Jesus was all about him establishing the kingdom of God that would eventually go from just being Jesus and his 12 disciples to becoming a mighty mountain that would fill the whole earth. That's why in Acts it says that the 12 disciples turned the world upside down for Christ. Why? Because they're establishing the kingdom. Jesus is the rock that came to establish the kingdom that would fill the whole earth. It's not at the second coming of Christ that his kingdom is established, but at the first. Well, I don't know if I agree with you, Craig. Well, then you're going to disagree with Jesus because in Matthew 4.17, he says this, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is what is here. In other words, he's saying, I'm here, the kingdom of heaven is here, the kingdom of God is here. The reason why it's called kingdom of heaven in Matthew is because Matthew was written to the Jews. And if they said the kingdom of Yahweh, the Jews would consider that blasphemous using the name Yahweh. But if you look in Mark, uh, Luke and John, it's the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, hey, repent, the kingdom of God is here now. Not when he returns, but now. Christ is not establishing a kingdom in his second return because the kingdom has already been established. Are you sure? Yes. Because Jesus says again in Luke 17, 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said to them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed, these are Jesus' words, the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is not a place. It's not a territory. It's not a nation. The kingdom of God can't be observed. You can't say there it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not territory, the kingdom of God is dominion. 
The kingdom of God is wherever God has dominion, rule. Hence, the kingdom of God is within you because if you've given your life to Jesus, he is not just your savior, he is your Lord and he has dominion and rule. Your life is not your own, it has been brought with a price. The kingdom of God is not territory, it's not physical, it's dominion. And the job of the church which is what becomes the mountain, which ends up filling the whole earth. Our job is to get out there and reach the loss and establish the dominion of God and in many people's lives as we can, leading them to their Lord and Savior so that the kingdom of God fills the whole earth through the lives of individuals where he is Lord and Savior. He's not coming to establish his kingdom. He's already established his kingdom. And we have a responsibility to make sure that that kingdom fills the whole earth. And that's why we are the victorious church and not a church hanging on by the skin of our teeth, hoping that Jesus comes back soon because everything's going to hell in a handbasket. No, the kingdom of God does not withdraw. The kingdom of God always advances. That's why I said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. What are gates? Defensive measures and not offensive, which means if the gates can't prevail against the church, it means that the kingdom of God is offensive. We are a victorious church. Come on. Oh, but what about the persecution? Persecution is good for the church. All the way through history and currently now all over the world, where there is persecution, the church grows and thrives the most. Just like the persecution that the enemy thought they could bring to Jesus by crucifying him on the cross actually became the very thing that brought salvation to the world. Come on. Persecution isn't something to be feared. Persecution is something to lean into because we are the victorious church. We don't shrink back. We push forward. Why? Because Jesus said the kingdom of God is not a place. It's not a, it's not a territory. It's within you. It's not where you live. The kingdom is in the lives of those who are fully yielded to God. And you can look around today and you will not see. You will see the kingdom of God today and people all over the world, but you will not see the Babylonian kingdom. You will not see the Persian kingdom. You will not see the Greek kingdom. You will not see the Roman kingdom. They have all gone. Now, how some end time people interpret that is that they say that the rock is when Jesus returns a second time. The issue that I have with that, well, that would mean that we're still under Roman rule. And we're not. We're under Jacinda's. Not just joking. <laughs> you can't see all those other kingdoms because they've all gone. But you can see the kingdom of God. Just look at the person next to you. The kingdom of God still stands. And the thing is, when you understand that the kingdom of God is here now, then you live differently. 
Because when you think the kingdom of God is coming, you're, you're, you're hold on, you're waiting for God to come. And so you tend to just look after yourself and make sure that you're safe and that you're okay and, and looking out for the signs of when he's returning. But when you understand that the kingdom of God is here now in you, it's a different mentality. You live differently because you understand that you walk in authority and that our role and our goal and that God has for us is to establish the kingdom of God and everybody else that we know. You live differently. You don't shrink back. You push forward because we have a responsibility to help the kingdom to fill the whole earth. This speaks of a victorious church, not one that is holding on. Listen to this. Micah 4.1 says this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. And listen, and the peoples, all the nations, all the people groups of the world will stream to it. That, that is not a defeated church. That is a victorious church. And that's what he's coming back for. There are a few things that we know that are definite about Christ's return. We'll look at two of them. But let me give you the other three that we definitely know about. The first one would be this, is that when Christ returns, the Bible talks about two judgments. There's one which is called the judgment of the righteous. And really where you, it's not a life and death judgment. It's a what did you do with what I gave you? It's, it's the story of the talents. Yeah, what did you do with what I gave you? the talent that I gave you, the gifts that I gave you, the calling I gave you, what did you do with that? If you're a musician and you're not part of the team, God's going to ask you at some stage, what did you do with that gift that I gave you? Because all the giftings and the callings are of God and they're without repentance. In other words, you're not, you're not an awesome businessman because you're awesome. You're an awesome businessman because God's given you the talent to be an awesome businessman. It's his gift that he gives you. So what are you doing with it? That will be one of the judgments. The other judgment, and this is not so PC, and we don't really like talking about this one, but it's the judgment of the unrighteous, and that's do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And if you don't, you end up in the lake of fire. If you do, you're okay. Then the third thing, before I get into the other two, the third thing that we know for sure is that Jesus defeats the devil and all of evil. So he, dis not, not defeats, sorry, that's wrong. He defeated the devil on the cross. He destroys the devil when he comes back and destroys all of evil. So there is no longer evil or sin or anything existing anymore. But I want to look at two things today that I think sometimes we get a little confused about in Jesus' return. Are you okay? Is this right? First thing is resurrection bodies. How many people want a resurrection body? I think the problem is we think about resurrection body and we think Marvel Universe, right? You know, like, yeah. Um, it's not really that. Philippians 3.20 says this, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, listen, will transform our lowly bodies 
so that they will be just like his glorious body. How many people think that sounds awesome? 1 Corinthians 15, 52 to 54 says, In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will raise imperishably, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then they will say, what is written has come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Did you get that? <laughs> it's like perishable, imperishable, mortal. What is Paul talking about here? Paul is actually teaching a biblical truth here. That when Adam and Eve, or when man was created, we were created in the image of God, and we weren't created with our earthly bodies. We were created in the image of God, so we were created with eternal bodies. And in fact, if you look at science, scientists will tell you that, that our, human, our body should be able to live forever. They can't work out how it doesn't. I'll tell you how it doesn't, because when Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree that was forbidden, and Jesus said, if you eat of that, you will surely die, he wasn't talking about physical death. He was talking about, you won't have the glorified created in my image body, that will die. You're right? God made our bodies to be internal, but when Adam and Eve did what they did, and Jesus said, if you eat of it, you'll surely die, that's what happened. I'll prove it to you as we go. Is that all right? 1 John 3.2 says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But listen to this. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, how many people know that when Christ ascended in the book of Acts, he had a glorified body? He, he, he hung out with the disciples. He walked through walls. How cool is that? It's a glorified body. But here's the thing. People always ask us, will we be able to recognize each other? My, my answer would be yes, because Jesus in his glorified body, the disciples recognized him. And in fact, Thomas touched his hands and touched his side where he was pierced. He was not unrecognizable. I think that we will be recognizable. And but Jesus was in the form of his glorified Bible. Why? Because the Bible teaches that when we were originally created, we were clothed in God's glory. When, we were, when Adam and Eve, mankind, was originally created, we were clothed in God's glory. That's why before Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't have any clothes because they were already clothed in his glory. Hence, when they sinned, that's why they went and covered themselves up because they were trying to get back the glory. Let me put it this way. Every single human being from every nation, every tribe, has a need to be clothed in glory. You're like, what do you mean? Well, just look at the fashion industry, the jewelry industry, even tribes in the furthermost parts of the world have all sorts of things where they 
paint themselves in all sorts of colors or they have all sorts of feathers from different birds or animal skins. They're all, they're all particular meaning things. It's all about mankind trying to bring itself back to glory, simply trying to recover the glory that was once ours. That's why we spend time buying the clothes we buy because we want people to say, you look awesome. Okay, maybe some of you don't. <laughs> Husbands, that's what your wife wants to hear from you. Just a little tip on the side for you. How, how do you know this for sure, Craig? Well, he, here it is in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 4. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, so Paul is calling this body that we have our earthly tent, we have a building from God, an internal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal can be swallowed up by life. In other words, death is swallowed up in victory. See, we have been taught that when Christ returns, we leave this planet and we go to heaven where God has prepared a place for you, in advance for you, a mansion. And so you go to heaven and then you get to check out what kind of house he built for you. Some of you want a big house because you want all the family living with you. Some of you, it's like a studio apartment so the kids can't come live with us. We think that there's this, we get taken away to heaven and God's built a house for us. But Paul is saying here that what God has built in heaven is our heavenly body, that our earthly body, or that we groan to be clothed in. Are you with me today? Maybe, I'm not saying for definite this is the case. I'm just trying to make you think a little bit different. Maybe it's not a dwelling for you to live in, but a he heavenly dwelling for you to be clothed in. You see, every time Scripture talks about our heavenly bodies, it refers to them as heavenly dwellings. Paul says this earthly body is a tent which we groan with and we are burdened with, and I feel like the older I get, the more burdened I am with it, until we are clothed in our heavenly dwelling, glorified bodies. Why? Because God's trying to get us back to his original intention of creation. Are you okay? Created in his image. See, here's the problem. We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. We are not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Are you okay? We are not a body that has a soul. We are a soul that has a body. I'm not saying for definite this is exactly what's going to happen. I'm just saying maybe. Maybe it's that he doesn't take us away. 
but he actually restores us back to his original intention. Then they talk about a new heaven and a new earth. In the new heaven and the new earth, we know something, that sin will be absent. You see, at the cross, Jesus dealt with the penalty of sin. At his second coming, he deals with the presence of sin. He removes sin from the world, destroys the devil, and removes all of evil. At the cross, he dealt with the penalty of sin. When he comes a second time, he deals with the presence of sin. The new earth and the new heaven will reflect all of who God is. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, not only did sin enter into them personally, but also into the realm that they had authority over, as in the earth. Because when Jesus created them, he said, go forth, have dominion, rule over the earth. When they sinned, not only did sin come into them personally, but sin also came into the, to the realm that they had authority over, and the earth ever since then has been subject to decay. And at Christ's return, creation itself will be delivered from sin's consequences. How do you know that, Craig? Because in Romans 8, verse 18 to 23, Paul the Apostle said this, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are against its will. He's talking about creation here, not people. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, that creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been growing, groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope of the day when God will give us our full rights as adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Isn't that a cool scripture? If the belief is that when Christ returns a second time, that the earth as we know it is destroyed and God makes a whole new one, then why does the scripture say that the earth is groaning and eagerly waiting in anticipation of being redeemed? Just asking the question, why would he destroy something that is waiting to be redeemed? I don't understand that. God created creation for a purpose. Why would it be yearning to be redeemed from its decay so that when Jesus comes back, he can destroy it? That doesn't sound like God. So my question is this, and I'm not saying I know the absolute answer to this. I'm just trying to get you to think beyond what you have been taught or your lives to maybe think that there's something different than what you have been taught. See, the question is, when Christ comes back, is it destroyed or is it renewed? If we are returned back to God's original intention with heavenly bodies, Maybe creation isn't destroyed, 
maybe it's returned back to its original intention. Abba Craig, it says in the scripture that fire will come and destroy the earth. Yes, but does that mean fire destroys the earth or purges the earth? Because all through scripture, whenever fire is mentioned, it's a refining, not a destroying. It's purging sin, not destroying the person. Refiner's fire doesn't destroy you. It gets all the dross to the surface so that God can scrape it off and refine you. I'm just asking a question. If it's going to be, is it going to be a destruction and a literal new heaven and a literal new earth? I don't 100% know. I'm just asking the question. Maybe it's not destroyed. Maybe it's transformed. Let me put it this way. When a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, there is no trace of the caterpillar, but it still lives. Did, Did you hear that? If the caterpillar is gone because it's transformed into a butterfly, when it becomes a butterfly, you won't find a trace of the caterpillar, but it still lives. Is the new earth, this earth, transformed, renewed miraculously back to the original intention that God had for creation? And and what about the destruction of heaven? Because in our Western mindset, we think heaven is God's throne. But the Jews believed in three heavens. And in fact, the apostle Paul talked about being called into the third heaven. The the Jews who this was written to believed in three heavens. The atmosphere of the earth where the birds fly, they considered as the first heaven. The sun, the moon, the stars and the planets, they considered the second heaven. And then God's throne was what they considered to be the third heaven. So which heaven is getting destroyed based on Paul writing to the Jews at the time, not to a Western mindset? Which heaven gets destroyed? Is it the first one, the second one, or the third one? Is it the one where God lives, the spiritual heaven, the place of his throne? Or is it the planets? Or is it the atmosphere of the earth when it is renewed? I don't know for sure, I'm just... Just asking you questions. So helpful, Craig. You're not telling me anything for sure. You're just making me think. You know what? A lot of us could be given the gift of thinking. You see, you have to understand that a lot of things in the Bible are figurative. They're not literal, they're figurative. Just about all the stuff, it's just about the whole book of the book of Revelation is figurative. It's not literal. Let me give an example of of figurative in the Scriptures. Jesus says to his disciples, go out there and take the gospel to the world and just take your staff and your sandals and nothing else. Is Jesus in that moment endorsing naked evangelism? (laughs) Peter goes off, goes into a room, strips off. He's just got a sandal staff, comes out. Jesus, I'm ready. Whoa, Peter, no, no. That's not what I meant. But you, you can understand what I'm saying here. It's, it, he didn't literally mean just sandals and stuff. Could you imagine that? <laughs> we're, going, we're going street street witnessing on Friday night. 
just bring your sandals and your staff. On Saturday morning, I'll be going and bailing you all out of jail <laughs> for indecent exposure. A lot of the stuff in Scripture is figurative. And I think we have to look at this and go, is it a new earth? Is it a new heaven? Or is it a renewed earth? And is it the heaven over the earth, the first heaven or the second heaven that is renewed? Not Why would God destroy the throne room when it is perfect? It doesn't make sense. Let me finish with this. Revelation 21, 3 to 6 says this. I heard a loud shout from the throne room saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne says, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will freely give springs of living water. This same thing that he says here about all things new is also expressed in chapter 7, where he's talking about all believers from all tribes, from all people groups, from all languages, that they will be sheltered in God's presence, free from suffering, free from tears. Uh, even as back as far as Leviticus 26, God made this promise. In verse 11 of Leviticus 26, it says, I will live among you. I will not despise you. I will walk among you. I will be your God. You will be my people. He says here, to, to, to John, he commands John. He says, the one seated on the throne commands you, John. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is finished. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. This is right at the end of the book of Revelation. And he is using the very same term he used on the cross. It is is finished. Sin was finished on the cross, but evil is finished in his return. That, that suffering and pain well, was paid for on the cross, but suffering and pain ends when he returns. Behold, I am making all things new. Maybe it's a new earth and a new heaven and a new body and a new all of these things. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, and he's sovereign over everything in between. We don't have to fear. We don't have to worry. We are part of his family. We are the victorious church. And, and, and there's nothing that gets in the way of what God wants to do. And if you take nothing else out of this series, I want you to remember this, that Revelation, the book, is a pastoral letter addressed to Christians declaring that faithful endurance in the face of suffering will result in eternal blessing and reward. And that this faithful obedience by Christians will ultimately, and this is what we should be talking about when it comes to the book of Revelation, that this faithful obedience by Christians will ultimately result in the glory of God and Christ. To God 
be the glory. Ultimately, that is what the end time is all about. God getting the glory. From us, through us, to him. It's, it's, not a, it's not something that we fear. It's something that we go after. We need to, we need to populate heaven We need to get hell as empty as possible and get heaven as full as possible. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. Ultimately, end time is about us being faithful to him, hanging in there for the eternal reward so that God gets the glory. Why don't we all just close our eyes just for a moment? And I want to pray for each and every one of you. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your return is not a return to, it's, it's, it's not an emergency room. You're rocking up to do an emergency evacuation of broken people. Your return is to come and see us returned back to the original intent of everything that you had for us. Your return is about the victorious church that has committed themselves to following Christ and faithful obedience to make sure that it fills, the kingdom of God fills the whole earth. We are not on the back foot. God, we are on the front foot, advancing the kingdom in every life that we witness to, to every person that we talk to, to every soul that we encounter this week. It's an opportunity for the kingdom of God to advance. Father, help us that in these times of, of what some people are calling persecution and suffering, which in my opinion really isn't compared to other parts of the world, but help us to understand that it's not for us to wallow in, but for us to reach out, to see lives transformed so that the glory goes to God. God, help us to always have a mindset that we're not about this life. We're about filling heaven in the time that you come so that when you return, you return for a bride that is spotless and without blemish and victorious and all that it does. God, I break off all the fear, all the worry, all the concern that people may have. I pray, God, lead us into the victory that you've already created for us, that we too would be the victorious church, that at the end of time, that all the people would stream towards the mountain of the Lord, the church that you have established. God, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace towards us. Bless every single person in this room this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. <laughs> I am so excited about Easter this year, and uh, I want to encourage you, let's not, let's not miss out as we build towards Easter. After Easter in May, we've got a really, really cool series um, that I'm super, super excited about. It's called How to Hug a Vampire, Loving People That Suck the Life Out of You. Anybody got any? I saw wives elbowing husbands. That's about you. Um, 
Why don't you stick around, get to know us. Hey, fill out the Live Connected card if it's your first time here. Stick around, get to know us, have coffee, hang out together. God bless you. Have an incredible, have a victorious week. And we'll see you all next Sunday. God bless.